Well, all right, good afternoon, Hallows Church. It's good to see you, Fremont, on this uh, beautiful afternoon. I'm looking forward today to uh, opening our Bibles and diving into the Scriptures. Now, if you've uh, been with us lately, you'll know that a few weeks back in Ephesians chapter 6, we talked about the spiritual uh, warfare that you and I as Christians face on, on really an ongoing basis against this enemy of ours called Satan and against uh, his, the, the cosmic powers of darkness, Paul calls them. He also calls them spiritual forces of evil. But the Bible is quite clear that Satan is not our only enemy as Christians. As Christians in this life, we have not only this external enemy prowling around, we have an internal enemy too, conspiring against us, waging war within us. And that's what I'd like to explore today in this passage, Romans chapter 7, verses 14 to 25. Now, there was a, a Scottish poet, a novelist, too, who lived in the late 1800s. His name was Robert Louis Stevenson. He's perhaps best known for writing the children's classic, Treasure Island. But he's also quite well known for another book that he wrote, too, a fascinating story, a uh, somewhat terrifying story entitled The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Have you, have you read this? Have you heard of this? If you, if you haven't, you should read it. It's a classic. It's very interesting. It's a story about a man named Dr. Jekyll. And this man, this doctor, over time, he was becoming more and more unsettled within himself. He was becoming more and more unsettled about himself, too. You see, he was realizing over time that uh, uh, inside of him, there was not one person, but two. There was not one self, not one nature, but two selves, Two natures, a good self and a bad self, a good nature and a bad nature. You see, he was beginning to see that deep inside of himself and deep inside of uh, every other person, too, there was a certain duality, a certain duplicity, too. Listen to how he, de how he describes this in the story. He says, with every day, I thus drew steadily nearer to that truth, that man is not truly one, but truly two. I learned to recognize the thorough and primitive duality of man. I saw that of the two natures that contended in the field of my consciousness, even if I could rightly be said to be either of them, it was only because I was radically both, he says. Two natures, he says, contending in the field of my consciousness, both radically me, one good, one bad, both me, he says. And Dr. Jekyll was growing weary that he himself was the battlefield. He was the uh, war zone, so to speak, between these uh, two competing selves. And he became very unhappy with his life because he could see no way out of this. How could he be happy when these two selves were always at odds, warring one against the other, keeping him from ever truly enjoying his life? And so Dr. Jekyll, he comes up with an idea, and he says this, if only each of these two parts of me could but be separated, housed in separate identities, life would be relieved of all, of all that was unbearable. And so Dr. Jekyll decides to make a potion, a remedy. I mean, he's a doctor after all, and a doctor who liked to dabble in the laboratory, it turns out. So he concocts this potion, which uh, for the very first time enables him to separate these two sides of himself. 
And he plans to use this potion such that during the day while going about his profession and going about his life uh, in the community, he would only be his good self, the good Dr. Jekyll. He thought this way he could finally be unencumbered. He could finally be freed from the influence of his evil self, finally uh, able to be better, to, to do better, to reach and realize all of his goals. But at night, the potion would be used to let his evil side out, and he he gave this evil side a name, and the name was Dr. Hyde, or Mr. Hyde, rather, Edward Hyde. And this name Hyde is fitting. It's a name derived not only from the word hidden, but also uh, from the word hideous. And hideous, Edward Hyde indeed was, as, as things unfolded in this story. And the way things played out is very interesting, because what Dr. Jekyll had not realized was just how evil this this, this bad side of himself was. Because when this evil side of him was let out, when Edward Hyde got out, so to speak, he was far more evil and far more powerful than Dr. Jekyll could have imagined. In fact, the moment he took the, uh, the potion to become fully Edward Hyde for the very first time, listen to, what, listen to what Hyde says. He says, I knew myself at the first breath of this new life to be more wicked, tenfold more wicked, sold as a slave to my original evil, and that thought delighted me like wine, he said. And what ends up happening is that Dr. Jekyll finds that once Edward Hyde got out in this way, it was not so easy to contain him anymore. And Edward Hyde gained more and more control over this man until eventually this evil self, Edward Hyde, was uh, the one calling most of the shots, whether any potion was taken or not, Edward Hyde was taking over this man. And what happens in the end is quite tragic. Dr. Jekyll kills himself in order to kill Edward Hyde because he couldn't see how this battle within himself could be won any other way. Now, it's a pretty bleak story. It's a troubling and terrifying story in a lot of ways. And and it's hard to miss the similarities between this conflicted man in, in Robert Louis Stevenson's novel and the man being described by the Apostle Paul in this passage you just heard from Romans chapter 7. And it turns out those similarities are no coincidence. You see, the writing of this story by Stevenson was inspired at some level by this passage uh, in Romans chapter 7. Stevenson, you see, he grew up in Scotland in the late 1800s in a Christian home to devout Presbyterian parents. His grandfather, in fact, was a minister. He was a pastor. And that quote from the book that I just read where Hyde said, I am sold as a slave to my original evil, it comes right out of this passage in Romans chapter 7, verse 14, where Paul says, I am sold as a slave to sin. Now, here's a question I'd like to pose to you this afternoon. Does Stevenson get any of this right as he describes this internal conflict within this very troubled man? If he was inspired to write this story, at least in part by uh, Romans 7, does he get any of this right from a biblical perspective? I think the answer to that question is yes, but I also think the answer to that question is no. The answer is yes, the story does communicate certain uh, accuracies about the inner war that Paul is going to tell us about and, and the tremendous capacity for evil within each one of us. But the answer is also no. The story does not reflect Paul's uh, thinking at all on the true nature of the battle we face as Christians 
or the hope that we have and can find in the midst of that battle or the ultimate outcome of that battle either. Dr. Jekyll, he understood there was a war within, there was a sort of good self and a bad self, and when he got underneath it all, he found that his evil self was far worse than he suspected, and he felt he needed to take extreme measures to deal with the situation. Robert Louis Stevenson's story ends essentially on, uh, at the point of, oh, wretched man that I am, in verse 24 of this passage. But Stevenson, he never... He never turns the corner that Paul turns, where Paul breaks through that cry of despair with a, a joyous shout of hope. Who will deliver me from all this, he asks. And then he answers his own question. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Three things I'd like to draw out of this passage today. Who is this divided man? Why is he so divided? And what is he to do? First, who is this divided man? Now, this is a passage here that has perplexed many for a long, long time. It is quite clear that a rather serious conflict is raging within this person that Paul is writing about. Paul is writing about a startling battle within what seems to be a very divided man. But who is this man? Whose experience is, is Paul describing here? You heard the verses. Let's read them again, at least verses 14 to 19. Verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold as a slave to sin. For I do not understand what I am doing because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. And so as you think about those words that, that you just read and that I just uh, spoke, how, does, how, does the, how do those words land with you today? Are you saying to yourself, perhaps that guy, that person seems seems really messed up? Or perhaps are you saying to yourself, yes, yes, I get it. Whoever Paul is writing about, this person appears to be under uh, the control of sin. This person is struggling against the, the presence and the power of sin. That much seems hard to miss. Some say it sounds like Paul is describing a person who sins regularly, perhaps even compulsively. And because of that, this person sounds, at least in these verses, deflated and, and defeated. And very interestingly, Paul is saying about this person, he's saying there are two parts to this person. Two parts, the part who wants to do good and not evil, and the part who does the evil he does not want to do. Two parts, two natures, two selves, if you will. And interestingly, both parts of this person, the part who wants to do good and the part uh, that practices evil, he refers to both of them as I, as me. First person singular pronouns are used. They're both uh, me, he seems to say. But not only that, as you step back and look at this passage, verses 14 to 26, not only uh, are the pronouns in the first person singular, but the verbs are in the, in the present tense. 
And verse 14 is actually a sort of pivot point in that regard. I say that because every verb in the prior section, verses 7 to 13, was in the a past tense, kind of talking about how before he met Jesus, sin was killing him. He was dead. But when Paul hits verse 14, he shifts into the present tense as he starts talking about this inner struggle with sin. And then over the next 12 verses across this entire passage, as, as Paul talks about this internal struggle, every single pronoun, first person singular, every single verb, present tense. And so the most plain and straightforward reading of this passage is that Paul is speaking about himself here, about his own present tense struggle with sin as a Christian man as he writes these words. Now, much, much more could be said about this, and much, much more has been said about this, but I would say that the majority of Christian thinkers and the classic Reformed position on this is that it, as alarming as some of this language sounds, this divided person being described by Paul is, is Paul himself as a, as a Christian believer. And so if that's the case, what are we to make of this? Is Paul perhaps talking about himself as an immature Christian trying to walk obediently with Jesus but struggling and failing and falling into frustration and despair? Could Paul be talking about himself backsliding in moments or even seasons as he seeks to get the upper hand in this battle? He does seem to make clear elsewhere that this can happen and does happen at times with Christians. Or is this perhaps Paul a mature Christian telling us something about the normal Christian experience, having a very realistic self-awareness of his true condition and the war being waged within him. Paul does not tell us which it is. He does not exactly tell us what he's talking about exactly or who he's talking about exactly or, or the nature of this struggle or how often that struggle takes place. Each and every one of these possibilities is plausible in light of the things that he says here and the things he says elsewhere too. I think from Paul's perspective, what would be far more troubling than any one of those possibilities being true for you would be that if you were unable to ever see yourself in the words of this passage and describe yourself in these terms... I think he'd say that if you can't see yourself in the words of this passage, then you don't really know yourself at all. You're either not a Christian or you're a very deceived Christian. But we must have a proper perspective here on this too. I don't think Paul is saying that a Christian lives a, con uh, lives a life in continual defeat by sin. That is not uh, the message of this passage. But I do think that Paul is saying that no Christian can expect to live in continual victory over sin either. And so as you think about these words today, as you think about your own heart today, is this a battle you're uh, familiar with? Is this a battle that you're fighting? Where are the battle lines being drawn in your heart, in your life today? What are some of the good things that you want to do that you don't find yourself doing? What are some of the things you hate doing? but that you nevertheless keep on doing. The battle is very real. Paul makes that clear, but Paul does give us some answers here. Now, we answered the question, who is this divided man? And the answer is Paul. The answer is, is you. 
The answer is me. The answer is us as Christians. But he's also going to answer the question, why? Why is he so divided in this way? Why aren't we so divided? Paul tells us why he's so divided in verses 20, 20 to 23. He says it's because of sin. It's because of the sin that still resides in him, that still resides in us as Christians. Paul says there's me, and then there's something in me. Back in verse 17, and then now again here in verse 20, Paul says sin is living inside of me. Notice in verse 21, he talks about evil. He says there's evil present within me. Now, these are tremendous statements about the power of sin and evil living inside of me. He says, waging war against my mind, taking me prisoner, keeping me from doing the things that I want to do. And it's very important we understand what Paul is saying here. Many misunderstand this about sin. Evil and sin don't just act upon us from the outside. They're not something that just comes into us temporarily and camps out. And if you know what you're doing, you can kind of get rid of it. You can kind of uh, shoo it away. Paul says sin is at home in us. It dwells in us. It's deeply rooted in us. Now, many think of sin as bad behavior, and it is. Many think of sin as wrong thoughts and wrong actions, and indeed it is. But Paul is saying that fundamentally sin runs far deeper even than that. The Bible, in fact, teaches that sin is not merely wrong thoughts or wrong actions. It's very much an inner, an inner disposition that inclines us towards those wrong thoughts and towards those wrong actions. Fundamentally, sin is a power. It's a predisposition living deep within us, waging war against our minds in ways that keep us from doing the things we want while leading us to do the very things that we hate. <clears throat> you may be familiar with the Christian author and speaker, Joni Erickson Tata. Joni was only 17 years old when she dove into a lake one day without knowing how deep that lake was. And it turns out that lake, it was not very deep at all. She suffered a tragic accident that day that left her paralyzed from the neck down. And right after that accident happened, and before they knew the full extent of the damage, she was rushed to the hospital that day. And in one of her books, she describes her first realization, her first and a very distressing realization of the struggle that she would be facing in her life from, uh, from that point forward. As she lay there on the hospital gurney, fully conscious, covered only by a thin hospital sheet, she says somehow that sheet, it, it slipped off her body as she lay there and it left her partly exposed. She said in that moment, her natural reaction was simply to cover herself up. But she said as she went to reach for the sheet, as much as she wanted to make her arm and her hand move, her body refused to respond. Joni knew in her mind exactly what she wanted to do, but her body was unresponsive. Her body refused to respond in the way that her, her mind wanted it to. And in a strange way, you see a similar sort of dilemma, don't you, in this passage? Look again at verses 22 to 23. 
As Paul describes the frustrations of this man in Romans 7, 7 it's almost as if at times he's, he's watching as a third party as his mind sends a signal to his body to do something or to, to not do something, but his body refuses to, to listen. Now, this Joni Erickson Tata analogy, it's interesting, but I do think it's incomplete because it is one thing to have your body not do what your mind wants it to do and what your mind tells it to do, and it's quite another to realize that the sin living in you is sending contrary and conflicting signals all the while to confuse you and, and to divide you. Although as Paul says here, as Christians, we do delight in God and his law in our inner being. And although our deepest uh, desire is to follow him faithfully, at times our deepest desires can be overwhelmed by the stronger desires and the stronger demands of the sin living inside of us. That's the picture Paul is painting here in this passage. At times, as Christians, our deepest desires are not always our, our strongest desires. Paul says that is why we're so divided because of the sin in us and what sin is doing in us. But a second reason Paul would say he's divided and would say we're divided too is not because of sin, but because of, because of the Spirit. Even though the Holy Spirit is not uh, explicitly mentioned here in this passage, the Holy Spirit is there in the struggle, to be sure. The Bible is quite clear that you cannot hate sin. You cannot uh, delight in God's law in your inner being. You cannot desire to follow God's law in your life as the person in this passage does unless the Holy Spirit has first awakened uh, you in that way when you put your trust in Jesus and it turns out you find a very interesting parallel passage to this one, a very concise summary of this passage, in fact, in a single verse in Galatians chapter 5. And that verse does mention the Holy Spirit. Let's take a look at that. Chapter 17 of verse 5 of Galatians. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. Now, in the Bible, the flesh is not referring to our body as it may sound to some. It's referring to the, this indwelling sin we've been talking about, to the uh, sinful nature within each one of us. And Paul says the flesh and the spirit, they're opposed to one another. And what's the result? The result is you not doing what you want. That sounds a lot like Romans 7, right? Now, what I want you to consider is how the war within you before you become a Christian is uh, different than the war within you after you become a Christian. They're different. In the old battle, the battle before you met Jesus, in, in, in the Jekyll and Hyde battle, so to speak, I do think Robert Louis Stevenson got it right in, at some level in saying that the two selves are, are both you, the good self and the bad self, both equally you in a sense. The part of you that wants to do to be good and to do good, that's you, right? And the part of you that wants to be bad and do bad, that's you too. They're both you. And as we saw in the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, there's a certain hopelessness to that. Because if they're both you, if they're both equally you, how in the world are you ever going to find yourself? How are you ever going to find out and figure out who you really are? They're both you. They both run deep. Each one of them has a has as much a claim to being the real you as the other, and it can become a hopeless battle. 
But if you look carefully, what you see Paul saying is that as a Christian now, there's still a battle going on between these two sides of you, but they're no longer both equally you. Rather, now one of them is the real you and one of them is not. Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, the sinful nature desires what is against the spirit and the spirit desires what is against the flesh. Why? So that, so that, you, don't, so that you do not do what you want to do. It doesn't say there's a you that wants this and a you that, a uh, different you that wants that. Look back again at Romans chapter 7, verses 20 to 23. You see it there too. Verse 20, Paul says, I am no longer the one that does it. It's no longer me. Verse 22, Paul says, in my inner being, the real me delights in the law of God and wants to love and serve God completely, but there's another power in me that pulls me away from that, but that's not me. That other thing, it's, it's not me. When you become a Christian, the battle changes. There's a different warfare, and this new warfare, in this new warfare, you're not really divided in the same way anymore. There are no longer two selves who are equally you. Instead, there's the real you, enlivened by the Holy Spirit, created by the Holy Spirit in every way, a new you with a new heart who the Spirit wants to reveal and energize and empower. And then there's the sin living in you, opposing the Spirit, opposing the real you so that you do what you do not want to do. And so we've answered the questions, who is this divided man and why is he divided? Let's finish up by asking, uh, what is this divided man to do? Let's answer that question. What is he to do? What are, what are we to do? What most people try to do in their fight against sin, the Bible says doesn't actually work. What most of us do about the fact that we have a bad nature is that we take the moral law and we try, law, and we try to apply that moral law to our bad nature with an enormous exercise of willpower. We resolve to try harder, to do better, and to, to be better. In other words, we try to wipe out our Edward Hyde with our Dr. Jekyll. We try to deal with our bad nature by being very, very good. And Paul says it won't work. In fact, Paul says it may make things even worse. Earlier in chapter 7, Paul said some fascinating things about uh, the interaction between God's law, God's uh, commandments, and the sin that is living inside of us. In Romans chapter 7, verses 5 to 9, Paul talks about how sin is aroused by the law and its commands. He talks about how sin seizes opportunities through the law. He talks about how sin springs to life when you look to the law for power rather than looking to Jesus. It sounds strange, but what he seems to be saying is that if you try to apply the law to your sin, your sin will push back, it will rise up, it will spring to life, and your struggle will not get better. In fact, it may get worse. St. Augustine tells an interesting story about this sort of thing, about how the law can uh, arouse the sin that lives in us. In his book called Confessions, Augustine talks about how when he was a kid, he broke into a private orchard and he stole some pears off of a tree. Later on, much later on, he reflected on that incident in a very interesting way, in a uh, theological way, really. He asked himself, why did I steal those pears when, first of all, I was not even hungry? 
And second of all, even if I was hungry, he said, I hate pears. <laughs> After he stole those pears, he threw them to the pigs. He didn't even like pears, but he, he stole the pears. He says, the answer is this. I took the pears because somebody told me that I wasn't supposed to take the pears. He said, I had no interest in those pears. I didn't want those pears until somebody told me that I couldn't have those pears. Moral education, moral teachings detached from a changed heart made Augustine worse, not better in that instance. There's something about the sin that lives deep inside of us, even as Christians, even at the very same time uh, that we delight in God's law in our inner being, sin at times springs to life and seizes an opportunity and says very loudly, nobody is going to tell me how to live. Trying to apply the moral law and your own willpower to this war within will not make the struggle better. In fact, it may actually make it worse. And so what then? If that doesn't work, what will? Let's follow Paul's lead here in the final couple of verses of this passage. I think, in fact, here he gives us the battle cry of the humble uh, and hopeful Christian who sees this war within, who understands this war within, and who is engaging in the fight. Paul cries out three things in the final two verses of chapter 7. First, uh, verse 24, what a wretched man that I am, he says. Until we hate sin, we will not turn from it. Until we humble ourselves and reach the end of ourselves, we will not turn to God. Until we can cry out, wretched man that I am, we will never be changed or electrified by God's grace. A sense of deep despair over our struggle with sin and our defeat by it is really an essential step in the battle against it. I think Paul would say there is no such thing as a Christian who is not aware, not acutely aware of his or her own sin and willing to acknowledge it, willing to confess it, willing to cry out to God again and again for help before the battle, in the midst of the battle, after the battle, regardless of the outcome of the battle. Next, Paul cries out, who will rescue me from this mess? Who will rescue me from this struggle. Notice he does not ask who has rescued me, but who, who will rescue me. And he doesn't say I will rescue me. No, he turns away from what he thought could rescue him and the ways that he was trying to rescue himself. He knows that only someone outside himself can rescue him. And next, then we see an outburst of hope and joy as Paul cries out, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's reminding himself, he's preaching to himself that that final and decisive victory over sin is coming. The war is coming to an end in due time and thanks be to God for that. But then immediately after this outburst, you see a very humble, very interesting recognition of the reality of his situation in the meantime. In verse 25b, the final verse of this Chapter, he summarizes basically everything that he's been saying up, the, up to this point. He says, so then. He says, in the meantime, until that final deliverance happens, he says, with my mind, I myself am serving the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. Until that final rescue comes, Paul is saying, uh, I understand that in this life, I will, 
I will be an embattled man, and this war within me will, will wage on. Until then, I will be a divided man, both indwelt by the Spirit and harassed by the flesh, freed from the dominion of sin, freed from the consequences of sin, and yet corrupted, nevertheless, by the presence of sin living inside of me. Paul says, this will be our lot until we die or until Christ comes. This is the biblical realism of Romans chapter 7. And yet this text is not intended to leave us in despair in our struggle with sin. Paul is not saying that the Christian life is to be dominated by failure and defeat. His point here is not how many battles he's winning or how many battles he's losing. I think his primary point is that these two realities exist within him and they help explain why he and other Christians just like you and I fall far short again and again of who we could be, of who we should be, and of who we want to be. It should also be said that this text is not intended to make us think that we can make peace with our sin either. We cannot say, well, there it is, even in the Apostle Paul, there's not much we can do about it, so I'm not, I'm not going to worry about it. The Bible implores us again and again to wage war against our indwelling sin, lest it trip us up and take us down. Victory over sin in our lives should be happening, but quite clearly, temporary defeat is also possible. And so we need to understand the battle. We need to understand ourselves. We need to understand how to respond when we do take hits and when we do get knocked down. And Paul shows us how to respond in those times, doesn't he, across this whole passage? I hate what I just did, verse 15. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, verse 22. Oh, the wretchedness I feel in these times. I need help. I need rescue, verse 24. And thanks be to God through my Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we have victory in part now and in full in due time. And as you do this, as you cry out in this way, I hope, I hope you'll see it as an opportunity. Rather than allow this war to get the better of you, rather than allow it to uh, beat you down, use it as an opportunity to uh, reflect on your own condition and your own desperate need for grace and how that grace has already been given to you in the gospel Use it as an opportunity to remember who went to war for you so that your war can one day end. Use it as an opportunity to lead you to marvel at Jesus because of what he's done for you. Do you know that in the very next verse from Paul, as he begins writing in Romans chapter 8, he starts talking about the grace of the gospel and how Jesus has dealt fully and decisively with, uh, with your sin for, uh, for you. In chapter 8, verse 1, Paul turns a sharp corner by reminding us that no matter, no matter your struggle, no matter the battle you face, no matter what sin you're struggling with this week, this month, or this year, there is no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. This means that God's love for you does not come and go, does not wane or waver based either on your victories over sin or your defeats by it. And so don't be deceived. Take 
your sin seriously, but don't be deceived by it either. And do you know why there is no condemnation? Do you know why you don't stand condemned for your past sins, for your present sins, for your future sins right now? Paul tells us why in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, when he says, Jesus, who did not know sin and who never did sin, he became sin. He became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus became sin for us. He was condemned in your place for your sin to give you a new hope, to give you a new life, to give you a new future where, where there is no more war. Would this be where you find your power? Would this be where you find your fuel in this fight until this fight is over? Let's pray.